Hello to you and welcome to the Jewellers podcast. We are in Melbourne talking to Catherine Kovacs and Laura Brio from the Gemological Association of Australia. Catherine Kovacs is the chair of GEMED and Laura Brio teaches gemology theory. We're going to start with Laura giving us a bit of a background to the GAA. So the GAA is a non-for-profit educational institution. Um, It's been in existence since 1945, so we've just turned 70. Um, We are created to um, pass on the knowledge of gemstones, how to identify gemstones, um, all the different features, scientific optical features of gemstones. It's important these days with the number of synthetics on the market and the number of treatments to gemstones that people are aware of how to look out for these, how to test for these, how to identify them. Um, so that's that's part of what we do. Yes, yeah, so uh, we have six divisions around Australia located in each state capital city. Uh, we are a, primarily a scientific body, uh, as Laura said, to promote the scientific understanding of gemstones. We conduct courses in gemology to... Uh, instruct people how to identify gemstones. So that's a diploma of gemology. We also have courses in diamond grading and diamond technology, which is a more in-depth study of diamonds. And our state teaching centres also, as state divisions, I should say, also conduct a number of special interest courses, things like uh, jewellery design and sketching, uh, introduction to gemology, um, pearl threading and uh, inclusion courses, other special interest courses as well. And it's got quite history, hey, and what I've noticed walking around is that there's been lots of people in the past who have uh, volunteered their time, their money, their expertise uh, to really build the GAA up as as something, as a service for jewellers and geologists in, in Australia. Um, Yeah, we wouldn't be able to exist without the support of the volunteers um, in the management, um, in the teaching, in the running of the organisation. Over the 70 years that we've been in existence, it's really only been the last five years since GEMED's been involved that all of the teachers around Australia have been paid an award wage. Um, Prior to that, most of the teaching was done with volunteers or with a, a small honorarium. Um, When you look around at a lot of the teaching materials that we have here, the specimens that we teach with, the vast majority, probably 90% in speaking from Victoria, have been donated um, either as individual gemstones or as large bequeaths and collections that have been left to us. Um, We're very fortunate to have the range of materials that we do and the support that we do from the community um, that we have here. And I've seen some amazing pieces of kit, antiques really, that, that you have here. Yeah, we've got, a, here in Victoria, we've got a pretty amazing collection of uh, antique microscopes. We've got over there the, um, uh, we've got the, the scales upstairs and we've got uh, the endoscope over here, which was a machine used for detecting cultured versus natural pearls. So we've got a, a really great collection, the diamond cutting machine, um, all sorts of things that have been donated here. Yeah, fabulous collection. So you can really see the evolution of of gemology. Uh, what 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 do you think has changed in the last sort of? <laughs> <laughs> it changes every day. Uh, we have Laura and I have attended numerous lectures on this uh, on this topic. It, it's something we could talk about for hours. What changes in gemology? So there'll be you know a a change every year something will come up you know you never know what's around the corner so as a gemologist you never stop learning you've always got to be on your toes so what instead of what changes is there anything that remains the same are there some key elements of gemology that don't Um, a lot of the scientific principles um, that we teach the gemology course is a two-year course and the first year course is mainly the scientific principles of gemology Um, A lot of those principles have remained the same in the 70 years that we've been in existence. The understanding of light and how light passes through a gemstone, how the the reflection and the refraction of light and how we can use that to identify gemstones has not changed. 
Um, what does change, though, is the introduction of new synthetics on the market, the introduction of new um, treatments on the market. Um, very often, these treatments find their way in and infiltrate their way into the market, and gemology is a bit of a catch-up game with um, scientists around the world trying to identify um, a new treatment that's come up, how the treatment has come about, People who do these treatments aren't often um, open in their disclosure about what they're doing. So we're a little bit of a detective in unravelling that process, what has happened, and then how we can train gemologists to be able to identify these treatments um, when they're buying materials. I was just thinking of an example. A friend of mine was uh, recently uh, had a chat with me and was sending me photos of this stone. She couldn't work out what it was and what you were talking about, Laura, about being a detective. And uh, it turned out she, she was turning it over. She said, it looks like a natural sapphire, but it doesn't look right. And she kept looking at it for about two days, worked it out. It was actually a doublet. So the top and the bottom part of the gemstone were two pieces glued together. The top part was natural sapphire, so it was testing as a natural sapphire, but the bottom half was uh, synthetic. Wow, that's a new level of sneaky, hey? It was a real... And, <laughs> and not only was it a doublet of synthetic and natural, but it had been diffusion-coated, so to give it a more intense blue colour. So you had to detect the diffusion treatment, you had to detect the, the natural top, and you had to detect the synthetic bottom. Now, there's a, a lot of words there when you say diffusion. We're probably talking to an audience who yeah, are not trained gemologists. <laughs> so we can talk a lot about advanced treatments. Some of the treatments that are done on gemstones have been performed for thousands of years, such as the heating of gemstones. Yep. The heating of amethyst to turn it into citrine um, is a treatment that has a treatment process that has been known for a very long time. Even things like crackled quartz, where you heat a material up to a very high temperature and then um, induce thermal shock by putting it in an ice bath. It induces fractures in the material and then you can dye those fractures a different colour so you get a different coloured material. Those processes that those materials undergo today are the same processes that were used 2,000 years ago. But some of the new technology, new treatments on the market today involve this diffusion process that Catherine mentioned. So this is done on a corundum or a sapphire material. The sapphire is heated up to a very, very high temperature of up to 1,900 degrees. Um, and then we introduce titanium and iron, which diffuses into the lattice of the gemstone. And the titanium and the iron is what gives the blue colour. So for a pale coloured material, we can induce a lot darker blue colour, um, which is a, a, a semi-permanent um, if the material breaks, if it needs to be repolished, you can lose the colour, um, but it's a, a fairly stable treatment. But it is one that we need to be vigilant about. It is one that we need to be trained how to identify, and it can be very tricky to um, identify as well, especially if you've got something that's in a setting, a piece of jewellery. Um, you need to be able to use your lighting correctly. You need to know how and where to look for these features. And it, it sounds like an interesting alchemy in itself, the the, the imitation part of it. Um, alchemy well, is a really, really good word to use. Um, there's a quote that I like to teach, tell my students um, when they're learning about treatments. It comes from Pliny, um, the Greek elder, and he spoke about the treatment of gemstones, saying that there is no greater deceit that earns greater profit than the fabrication and the treatment of gemstone materials. Um, that was written 2,000 years ago, and it's still very, very true today. Um, there are still individuals around the world who look at material that is unsaleable in its current condition, and they try to improve that material so that it becomes saleable on the marketplace. 
Um, that in itself is not a bad process. It's just that this material must be identified and disclosed at the time that it's being purchased, um, which is something that when you're dealing with overseas markets, um, some of that information might get lost or not passed on at all. So that's where the training in gemology comes in to know about these processes and how to identify them because some of these treatments can have a very great impact on the price of the material and sometimes the durability of the material and how stable the colour is as well. And is there much regulation around that sort of stuff if, in Australia? Uh, are you talking about like, uh, well, as a gemologist? Uh, yeah. Mis-selling mis- okay. gemstones, yeah. If you're a member of the Gemological Association, you agree to abide by our code of ethics. Um, and part of that is obviously disclosing things like treatments or whether it's a synthetic when you do an identification, you know, uh, that's certainly a part of it. Um, there are other bodies that also ask their members to abide by a code of ethics and yeah. to disclose those treatments. Um, for instance, the International Coloured Gemstone Association, I know, uh, has a code of ethics whereby mm-hmm. its members must disclose treatments or synthetics to, to, mm-hmm. their, to their clientele. And then there's Sibjo, um, who is the international um, organisation who govern the nomenclature. That's almost a very difficult word to say, nomenclature. The the Worldwide Jewellery Confederation, (laughs) yes. uh, They produce a number of what, what are called blue books, which outline how you... Uh, define gemstones or, or the what we call nomenclature, which is uh, things like... Uh, the terminology. The terminology, thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. So, yeah, it does exist, in other words. So what's the sort of most common way that imitation stones become unstuck <laughs> in that way? One of the things that I was thinking of, and Laura will be able to expand on probably the technicality of it, is uh, an issue that comes up with a number of jewellers is they'll get a piece of jewellery in that has a very nice looking ruby in it. And the ring needs to be repaired, it needs to be resized, or you've got a, a pendant where the bales come off. Uh, and the jeweller takes the torch and starts working with the metal. And the metal heats up and the ruby kind of explodes or just really, yeah, is damaged permanently. Mm-hmm. And then the jeweller finds out that the ruby is not actually just. A ruby it's one that's been treated with glass filling and uh, is not as durable as a normal natural ruby so but Laura probably be able to elaborate a little bit more on that. So I know it makes really good listening over a, a recorded <laughs> program but I've brought in a couple of specimens to be able to show you Lindsay and one of the specimens that I've brought in is a glass fracture filled ruby. Now it's got really really great colour the intensity of the red is fantastic. It shows up and faces up wonderfully. Um, but this material started out life being a little bit more opaque than it is now. It's heavily fractured. Um, and in order to make the material saleable um, and attractive, um, what they've done is to heat up this stone to a very high temperature with essentially a, a glass type material that's got a very high refractive index, very close to that of ruby. So optically, it's the same, has the same optical characteristics. Um, that glass is able to seep into those fractures within the stone and essentially like an invisibility cloak, make the fractures disappear. It makes the stone look more transparent and then the stone looks brighter and more red as well. But because of the amount of glass that is in this material, um, as Catherine said, if you heat it up, glass has a much lower boiling point. So you'll find that the glass can come out of the fractures, which then makes the material look like a very um, inexpensive, fractured, opaque material. Um, Sometimes with these stones, there can be so much glass in the material that the glass is almost holding together the other bits of the ruby. So when the glass starts to come out, the stone breaks apart. 
Um, that can happen as well if you put these stones into any form of acid, into a jeweler's pickle, um, sometimes even when you use an ultrasonic. I was going to um, say the ultrasonic is another one, but this is exactly why every, you know, it's so important for jewellers to have some gemological knowledge as well. Um, a lot of what we've said here, as we've been saying, is a bit gem nerdy and uh, whatever, but there are very practical applications, um, not just, um, I think, in just identifying synthetics and treatments, but also we were talking a little bit about cutting as well earlier today mm. too. So uh, just knowing things like um, about crystal systems and yeah. and how different crystal systems will lend themselves better to different cuts of, of gemstones as well. Sure. Well, even as a novice jeweler myself, uh, knowing what can go in an ultrasonic is is yeah. very important. Yes. Um, ultrasonics can be very devastating to a couple of gemstones, and in particular we can mention another one, which is tanzanite. Um, tanzanite, we have jewellers who say that they have put tanzanite in an ultrasonic, without any devastating results. Um, but So it gives you a false confidence <laughs> for the future. Yeah, yeah, don't do give, it. <laughs> but we really do recommend that you don't put any heat on a tanzanite and don't use an ultrasonic on a tanzanite. It can cause the gemstone to shatter. Um, and it's particularly devastating if you've got a jeweller who is setting someone else's stone and then has to replace a stone of the same colour, quality and the measurements to fit that setting. Um, yeah. So it's all care, no responsibility, but you need to you need really to in, in, invest a little bit of time in yeah. knowing what you're doing. You need to know what you're handling, basically, yeah. And that's where the gemological knowledge is just really handy and can save you a lot of pain down the road. And also for consumers to know what they've got so they can tell jewellers in the future what they have so they can get the correct repair and and all those things? Well, not only for repairing their item in the future, but also the durability of the material and what they can do with it on an everyday type of situation. Mm. Um, so there are some gemstone materials that are incredibly beautiful and make really stunning pieces of jewellery but are not durable enough to wear every day in a ring. Yeah. So the consumer needs to know how to take care of their item of jewellery. And that's part of where we as gemologists, especially if we're working in retail and point of sale, should have that information to be able to advise the consumer on how to make sure that the piece of jewellery that they're buying today becomes an heirloom that they can pass on to their children and their grandchildren and still look as great as when they buy it today. Yeah. It's a big investment. So mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just thinking of the, the, the example pearls is a really good one. Yeah. yeah. Um, being calcium carbonate or whatever, they, they do look beautiful, but for Christ's sake, please don't spray perfume on them, you know. <laughs> Ladies put their pearls on and then spray perfume on or wear makeup or whatever and, and it's like you have to take good care of them. And pearls, given good care, can last hundreds of years. Yeah. And then you see people that don't take such good care of it and it really does look terrible, you know. Uh, emeralds yeah. is another one too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a big one too. We're thinking of ultrasonic as well. Mm. Uh, that's something you want to keep out of um, detergents and that sort of thing. Sure. So... Yeah, there's a few. Don't shower in your emeralds. No, don't shower. Don't, don't, don't wash the dishes. Don't do the gardening. Don't have a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are the sort of common mistakes that consumers or jewelers uh, make that that are really simple that that may frustrate you as as uh, I'm just trying to think. Especially in terms of buying. If you're talking about consumers, um, at, at the side of the market that I'm involved with um, and speaking to students as well as being in the wholesale side of the gem trade, um, we get we hear stories of people buying jewellery on cruise ships and not yeah. knowing what they're buying or buying jewellery in markets overseas, thinking yeah. because they're in a 
gemstone manufacturing area that they're going to get something of better quality and cheaper than what they can get in Australia without the knowledge to understand what they're buying or what imitations could be out there and without without knowing the market conditions essentially. Um, Richard Hughes has is a, um, a very great gemologist who's been in the industry for a very long time. He's based in Bangkok at the moment. He's got a book out called um, Ruby and Sapphire. It's the Bible on everything to know about Ruby and Sapphire. But in that book, um, he's got something that he refers to as Dick's Law, which is the closer you are in proximity to a gem mining area, the more likely you are to encounter synthetics. It's an inverse relationship. So people without gemological knowledge or experience are more likely to get caught out on synthetics and treatments going to a gemstone mine. So those fossicking holidays is you... Oh, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. But we don't want to discourage people from fossicking, but but it's... it's, You go go to somewhere like Bangkok or or Sri Lanka and and they say, Mm. we'll take you to, you know, and get get you a gemstone at a price you'll never get at home. That doesn't really exist. So um, we we shouldn't really be commenting on a commercial sort of thing, but but certainly we're aware of it as as gemologists. The other thing that I was thinking of, um, Laura and I have discussed this yesterday, was I think uh, a thing that does frustrate me is people taking for granted uh, how rare these stones are, or, or not understanding the rarity of natural gemstones. So, for instance, you, you can't just order, a, uh, say, a, a square two-carat ruby and just expect it to be there. It's a, yeah. it's a freak of nature. You, you have to understand that these are things that were formed millions of years ago. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, it's not a supply and demand situation. Absolutely, absolutely. We were having a chat with uh, some gemologists last night about mining in Sri Lanka, you know, basically in, in Sri Lanka, you know, you dig a hole and you hope for the best and you don't know what you're going to turn up. So it could be something very small, it could be something very big, you don't know what the colour is going to be. So you can't always, if you, for instance, need to replace the stone, you can't always replace like for like exactly you're asking nature to create a doppelganger of something that's quite unique which is a big ask and you and you shouldn't necessarily want to replace like for like that's kind of the cloning idea maybe (laughs) actually actually there's quite a few people who do want to replace like for like and I think also um, my impression of uh, the insurance industry (laughs) might get myself (laughs) into trouble here is that they do tend to want to quote on exactly what the customer has and I do get concerned that customers may be putting that unrealistic expectation um, on the jewellers to replace exactly what they had, exactly the same cut, exactly the same colour. And from the wholesale point of view, it gets disheartening when you send out really, really fantastic looking stones, great quality, great colour, and they come back and they say, love the shape, <laughs> but, can I, but can I get exactly the same thing with just a touch more purple? Yeah. Um, and it, it just, it's, they're freaks of nature. You fall in love with the beauty of the piece um, and you find something that is attractive for you, but you can't expect to replace something like for like it down the line if something happens. You can get something that is close, um, but to get exactly the same is very difficult. And we t- we touched on it. we've touched on imitations to uh, quite a level, but uh, there is a, a, a conversation in the industry at the moment about uh, mosinite and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, what 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 should jewelers be aware of in terms of imitations and um, <laughs> You know, they they 
if if people want imitations, that's, that's fine. You can get them, that's for sure. Uh, come and do the course. Come and do the diploma in gemology <laughs> and find out. That'll make you aware of what's out there. That's, you know, it's a whole nother lecture. That's hours and hours of, sure. of stuff to to cover on synthetic moissanite, uh, imitating diamond, or whether it's a YAG also imitating diamond, whether it's HPHT, high pressure, high temperature treatment of diamonds. Uh, we could talk for days about that. That's why it's a two-year course. But um, our state divisions also all offer introduction to gemology courses. And these are usually between about six to ten weeks normally, I would say, Laura. Yeah? Well, they're about ten lessons ten long. Lessons, yeah. um, now, in Victoria, depending on the demand and the time of year, and it depends on what the students are asking for and the availability of teaching staff, we might decide to run that intensively over a weekend or do a, a two-hour lecture every week. But generally, in, in Victoria, the introductory course is ten two-hour lessons. So, yeah, it, it, this is a great great introduction for people that are, are jewellers and perhaps want to dip their toe into gemology. We cover most of the, you know, uh, major species of uh, or types of gemstones. Uh, we touch a little bit on treatments, a little bit on synthetics. It gives you a nice little grounding of that. Just enough to scare people. Just enough to scare <laughs> you, that's right. And then if, you, if you're really interested, then we do, you know, then there is the option of doing the diploma in gemology over two years. So uh, it that's that's a once you do that then you'll be able to confidently identify treatments and synthetics um although that's just the beginning of the journey because as i said you never stop learning yeah now when you when you're talking about imitants though one of the things that we try to teach in gemology is the range of colors that are available in sometimes within a species such as within tourmaline or within spinel Um, there's a great range of color that's available but we try to um, emphasize the difference between what is an imitant and what is a synthetic so a synthetic has got the identical chemical composition and the identical physical and optical properties as the natural gemstone. An imitant is anything that can look like it. So when we talk about moissanite and we talk about diamond, moissanite is a very effective imitant of diamond because we can get them in near colourless. They have got a very high refractive index. They've got a very high dispersion, so a lot of fire. So there's a lot of attributes of moissanite that look like a diamond. Um, But essentially when we talk about imitants, any gemstone that is of the colour that you want can be used to imitate another gemstone. So if you are wanting to purchase an emerald and you haven't got the funds for an emerald, any other green gemstone could be Um, used as an imitant or sold to a customer as an alternative to that emerald. So that's part of the value of doing the gemological education is to have a wider appreciation of the range of gemstone materials that are out there because often often we get people coming in here and their world of exposure to gemstones is very limited and doesn't extend that far past ruby is red, sapphire is blue, diamond is colourless, emerald is green. So we teach them about the variety of materials that are on the market so that if they're in the position of needing to advise someone else, they have that knowledge to say, well, we can get a really beautiful chrome tourmaline in a similar colour to emerald, or we can offer you a zavarite garnet that's got a similar colour to emerald. So this is where those imitations aren't necessarily a bad thing. Um, It's giving customers and consumers choice and alternatives. And also in terms of emeralds, Perhaps a tourmaline would fare better in the garden. And... Uh, oh, no, that, that's an interesting example. No, uh, no, 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 no jewellery in the garden, please no. Um, I think, yeah, we, we have been talking a lot about imitants and synthetics and it's all a bit scary and stuff, but I think the, the great thing about gemology is being introduced to such a wide variety of stones, that, as Laura touched on, that yeah. you just never even would have considered perhaps uh, or within the confines of a very traditional jewellery store. So, um, for instance, if we look at emeralds, you've got emerald green, you can have a green tourmaline, definitely not wearing that in the garden. But you might be able to get away with a Zavarite garnet. 
You might. Laura, Laura has just recoiled <laughs> in horror. Maybe a bit of light gardening. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, chrome diopside. Chrome diopside. Moldavite. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not for emerald. But, you know, uh, they're, they're, yeah. also the other thing I love about it is that once you've started, you, you really can't stop and then you find things along along your journey that uh, that are really unusual and because you've studied gemology, you can appreciate yeah. the rarity of some of the specimens that you come across. So, And, that, um, and that's yeah. one of the most rewarding things about teaching gemology is when you see the students um, come to the end of their journey with us and their world has opened and they start appreciating and really valuing the freaks of nature and yeah. the really unusual materials. Um, and we all do kind of get to be a little bit gem nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of things like um, we were talking, both Laura and I really love stones that exhibit asterism or or what's known as a cat's eye. Yeah. And that's where you get the inclusions all lined oh, wow. up. And uh, it, it exhibits, you know, under certain light conditions. And, yeah. again, this is so good for a podcast, talking about gemstones. <laughs> and Laura's showing you there. I, um, I actually have a couple of star <laughs> sapphires. And yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I just they, – they're, they're, they're in my collection and <laughs> they'll probably stay there forever. But this this is one of the things that we teach with gemology. Also, I've just got a couple of stones out here on the desk. I've got <laughs> I've got a natural star sapphire and a synthetic diffused star sapphire. Um, so part of the learning of gemology is learning how materials are manufactured in the laboratory, um, other treatments that can be applied to manufactured materials, because treatments aren't just performed on natural materials, they can be performed on synthetic materials as I well. Think so, yeah. um, and some of these um, optical phenomena, such as asterism that we get in gemstones, we need to be able to know how it can be replicated um, in the lab, and how to be able to identify the natural from the synthetic. I would also like to say, though, that when you do get something like this, and I'm a bit of a sucker for this, last time I was in Sri Lanka, I saw the most stunning um, natural blue uh, star sapphire and didn't quite have the funds for it. But <laughs> yeah. it was so beautiful and it really sticks with you. When you see something... Yeah that's natural, that's beautiful, um, and that is incredibly rare, uh, it really, yeah, it gets you going as a gemologist yeah. and, and it keeps you going. So, and, and finding those things like, you know, finding a bonito white or finding a, um, a really nice bicolour tourmaline with perfect colour separation or yeah. uh, a really nice Australian party sapphire. Or, and also it could yeah. be the way that it's beautifully cut to to show those Absolutely. those colors. Absolutely. That's one of the things too yeah. that we touch on in gemology is uh, well we don't just touch on it but we do go into it is studying crystal habits of of gemstones and why particular crystal habits lend themselves to certain cuts better than others. So that also is another aspect of gem appreciation although we don't really teach gem appreciation as much yes. as the scientific side but for instance as I said you know rubies and sapphires are usually cut as ovals and that's because of their crystal shape oh sure okay. so that's something that you learn as a gemologist so, how gemstones are cut as so well especially when you're wanting larger sizes it becomes more difficult to get yeah. round rubies and round sapphires just simply because you're restricted by how the gemstone grows so is there an obvious uh, stone that uh, somebody may ask for that is just not a really good option, like, I don't know, a princess ruby? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that a poor ruby. choice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and then you want three matching as well. Three matching, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you do learn a bit about that in, in gemology, but, yeah, it's about how things are cut and also the orientation of uh, the way that the gemstones cut. So when the cutter takes a piece of material, if you cut it one way, you're going to get a certain type of colour. If you cut it the other way, you're going to get a different depth of colour. So 
again, this is not really working on a podcast. <laughs> is it? I'm doing a lot of elaborate hand gestures here that are just not translating terribly well. So, so all of this knowledge really gives. Um, I, I I keep going back to retail jewelers. Uh, gives them like almost a flowchart of of trying to sort of decipher. You know, you you want something that you you know you're not a gardener uh you you want a a green you uh you know they they can advise which which way to go best for the customer's needs and you know yep absolutely and it has to fit in with the budget for consumers as well so a consumer might come in wanting a seven mil princess cut ruby but have the funds for a seven mil princess cut garnet um, and we can still be able to offer them really beautiful stones that may have a similar appearance, but that fit their budget. Um, yeah. And that's so, yeah, we should we should probably yeah. It's more about with a, a gemological qualification, you are aware of all those different types of gem species. So that's yeah, that does help. Yeah, and that helps to give confidence to the consumer as well. Um, if they're dealing with someone who is capable of being able to offer them alternatives and explain those alternatives to them, it gives them the confidence to know that they're dealing with someone that they can trust and that they're going to get a product that works well for them um, and fits into what their ideals are. Well, yeah, another thing too, though, is that it's really nice to be able to tell the story behind a gemstone. So not just to say, well, a ruby's red and a sapphire's blue and an emerald's green, but to be able to, to say, well, this is a... Uh, a Madagascan sapphire and, and this is where it came from and we know that it's from here because of these inclusions or to be able to, um, yeah, point out, uh, for instance, Tanzanite coming from Tanzania, it's coming from this particular mine uh, and to be able to explain to consumers a little bit more about the history of the stone um, and to give them that backstory is something that's quite rewarding both as, a, as somebody that's working within the industry, mm-hmm. but also for the person that's purchasing. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned going to Sri Lanka. Was it Sri Lanka that you said mm-hmm. that you've been to before? Have you, have you been to places where you've just nerded out <laughs> over your gems? Uh, can you remember specific yeah, places yeah. where you really <laughs> enjoy? <laughs> I, actually, yeah, the Gemological Association from time to time has run some field trips uh, in mm-hmm. Australia going to various gem fields. I've been to Cooper Pedy, I've been to northern New South Wales, been around Tasmania, and we go and visit fields and go fossicking and Beautiful. looking for stones. And, and yeah, we all get our gem nerd on when we do that. It's fun. <laughs> um, we have also in the past run overseas expeditions. So they're in the distant past, about 15 years ago, we did an expedition over to Sri Lanka this was yeah. just before my time. Um, and there's been a couple of expeditions over to Tanzania. Um, so we do like to... Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, is, it is a special thing when gemologists, when gem people get together mm. and, uh, for instance, like go to gem shows and that sort of thing and go, oh, sure. look at that, oh, look at that. I was reminded last night, actually, we did a uh, field trip to Kupiti about 10 years ago. And our bus broke down between Woomera and uh, one of the fields that we were travelling to out in the middle of nowhere. Nothing for miles around. And there were about 40 of us on this tour and everybody gets off the bus <laughs> and their heads all go down because they all started fossicking. <laughs> and just, I was just taken by this going, bunch of nerds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We talked a little bit about uh, Australian uh, gemstones because uh, there's many beautiful Australian gemstones that we have. We're a very uh, gem-rich country. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I'm hearing a lot about party sapphires at the moment. I don't know if that's just my own Facebook echo chamber. Uh, is is there, you know, how, how, how do you get involved more with, Australian gems. Oh, 
Yeah, I was going to bring up the opal thing. Yeah, indeed, opals. One of the things that the GAA is involved with is uh, we teach a very wide variety of stones, obviously, but we are also at the forefront of um, gathering and uh, furthering knowledge of Australian gemstones in particular. And in this, we're doing a lot of work at the moment currently on Australian opal, and we are working with the Worldwide uh, Jewellery Confederation on developing and refining the current uh, opal nomenclature system. That's something that's been going in place now, and we're actually working with mining groups and other stakeholders within the uh, the industry to uh, come to a, an agreement as to acceptable um, nomenclature to be able to identify Australian opals and, and that sort of thing. So that's something that we're involved with. It's it's not just teaching courses, but it's also furthering gemological knowledge for the world stage. So uh, what I don't I know nothing of identifying opals. What what are there some basics that you can walk us through? <laughs> Yeah. In in five minutes, in five minutes. So that that's again going to be quite complicated because it's sort of optical properties, and that's stuff that's probably best explained in pictures and that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, and particular patterns and and body color, and I probably wouldn't want to go into it. Yeah, just just as a as an audio kind of sure. yeah thing. Because with the, with diamonds, we've got the four C's, and that is it. Is so well known that people can really um, explain it to customers and, and and know it themselves. Uh, is, is that replicated to other gemstones in any sort any of, way? Opal, kind of, maybe a little bit. You know, because we we look at with opal, uh, we look at the body color, whether it's whether it's a dark body color indicating that it comes from. Uh, Lightning Ridge in New South Wales, whether it's a light body colour, which indicates comes from perhaps somewhere like Cooperpedia in South Australia, whether it's a, a stone which has an iron stone backing on it, which indicates that it comes from Queensland. Uh, so you you look at that, you look at the pattern of the colour within the opal as well, certain patterns. Um, so there's one called a butterfly, there's one called a harlequin, um, you know, rolling flash, that sort of thing. Um, Also the amount of colour in the stone. So there's sort of a a vague one there with opal as well, although it's not nearly as definitive as what perhaps we've got with diamonds. I guess with diamonds as well, uh, the the industry for diamonds has been going on for a long time so well, <laughs> uh, you, yeah. you know it's very established there's, a, there's been a lot of research done with diamonds into the quality of the cut and how to get the best optical performance out of the diamond um, and that's also been very successfully sold to the consumer um, the properties for which diamond are cut for the light return and something called total internal reflection and for brilliance and for scintillation, um, that is very translatable to other gemstones. Um, But the coloured gemstones don't have as strict a regulation on the quality of the cut as the diamonds do. Um, But when you talk about the four C's and about those grading reports, um, certainly a lot of, like the cut, a lot of those are translatable across in terms of um, concepts. So you look at colour of a diamond. Um, Now diamond is different from coloured gemstones because diamond is graded for its lack of colour when you're looking at the white diamonds, not the fancy colours. And generally the colourless diamonds would belong to something that we call the CAPE series. So these are the ones that the typical DEFG colour scale that consumers are familiar with are increasing increments of a yellow body colour. Now when we look at coloured gemstones, the coloured gemstones are appreciated for often their intensity of colour. And instead of being part of one particular um, um, group that has got a a particular yellow colour, if you look at something like a sapphire, um, not all blues are equal. Um, You can have... You can have a, a blue that's got um, a certain amount of purple components in it. 
Um, you can get a lighter blue, you can get a darker blue, a, a rich velvet blue. Um, and it's very, very difficult to build a grading system around consistency when there are so many variations of those colour and when it's the colour that the consumer is after. Um, so often we explain to people that you need to fall in love with something that your eyes appreciate um, and not be dictated by what someone else says is the best colour for that stone. Yeah, it's uh, coloured gemstones are, I'll probably raise the ire of diamond people here, they are unique as well. So yeah. it, it's a much wider field and it's not as easy to pigeonhole as diamonds, as mm -hmm. I think you've pointed out there. So, And that's something as a gemologist you, you begin to appreciate. The more gems you see, the more you appreciate just how rare they are. And that leads us beautifully on to my next question, which is what have you, what do you fall in love with in a gemstone? Personally, what's your personal favourite things? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do have so many favourite things about gemstones. Um, I appreciate um, really beautiful colours. I appreciate really beautiful cuts of gemstones. Um, before I studied gemology, I was a member of a lapidary club and learning how to facet. Um, so really good performance out of a cut is something that gets me very, very excited. Um, we don't do a lot of quality appreciation at GAA, but trying to tell the observe and appreciate the difference between a stone that has been cut for good optical performance, for brilliance, for scintillation, as opposed to one that has been cut that's too shallow and has got what we call a window in it. Um, that's something that I get very excited about, stones that have been well cut. Um, but also I have a very great passion for stones that have inclusions in them. Um, I love to take uh, photographs on my microscope. Um, for the classes that I teach here at GAA, all of the pictures that I show my students in the PowerPoints are all pictures that I've taken myself of various features. Um, and a lot of the gemstones that I have in my personal collection are not particularly valuable gemstones because inclusions tend to reduce the value of a gemstone depending on the inclusion. Um, but they're just really, really beautiful. They've got a, a really beautiful crystal shape or a really beautiful colour about them. Yeah. Um, so... so is it is it like clouds in the sky? Like, do you start is, like looking exactly for dogs like and that. things like that? <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I was talking to Laura about one of the uh, rutilated quartz, and which is a gemstone which is prized because of the inclusions in it, and the arrangement yeah, right. of inclusions Beautiful and the colour of, of the inclusions is something that makes yeah. it prized. And the more of them in, in rutilated quartz, the the more inclusions, the the, the better you. You want as many gold. That's it. <laughs> you, the thing I was seeing over is that you just, I find I fall in love with a different gem every day. Uh, and, you know, one month it'll be, oh, I just love tourmalines. Tourmalines are my favourite. Love a tourmaline. <laughs> <laughs> I love the variety of colours, the pinks, the greens, the blues, yeah. the intensity of colour. Um, recently I, I found um, a set of three stones and, I call it a cross between an imperial topaz and uh, like a mandarin. Oh, no, no, imperial topaz crossed with a morganite, if you can imagine that colour. And three pieces, I reckon they were all cut out of the one crystal. Because, and it's a colour I've never seen before. So yeah. yeah, and it was just really, really cool. And I just, I, I just love that little set. It's not particularly valuable, but... It's just incredibly beautiful and I've never seen anything like that before. That's definitely true. Like it's not just a single stone that is the interesting thing. Like sometimes I, I love garnets. I love the colour combinations of garnets when you get the mandarin garnet next to a savorite and, you, you know, the, it's, a, it's a beautiful combination. So sort of keeping it in the family um, works. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Oh, you want to, you want to talk? Sorry. Oh, you mean like com combining gemstones? Gen gen generally, they work better. And again, this is something that's not really gemology. This is probably yeah, me yeah. with my personal hat on here. <laughs> tourmalines look great with tourmalines. Spinels look good with spinels. 
garnets look great with garnets. So, um, and things like aquamarine and morganite look really good together. They're both beryls, so they, yeah. they tend to look very nice together uh, just because they tend to have the same tone to them, I guess. Yeah. There's plenty to go on. We could have a whole other discussion about diamonds. We could have another conversation about forensic gemology and antique jewellery. Oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. We, could, we, could have, we could have further conversations more about cutting. We could have conversations about rare and unusual gemstones. Um, conversations about crystals and crystal forms and habits. We could have a, a whole podcast just on corundum, yeah. or sapphire and the different colours of sapphire and all the other treatments that we haven't mentioned today. Um, you spoke about garnets. Garnets is one of the most beautiful but complex group of minerals. Okay. Um, and the range of colours, most people assume that a garnet is only red, but you've mentioned the mandarin garnet, which is a specetite garnet. It's a um, manganese aluminium silicate. Good for you. you. I know. Pull that out. And and not even just the the subject itself, but the building. Like you kind of come in here and it's a TARDIS of, 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 and it's beautiful, like museum, like. A library. Uh, it's it's a, it's you can spend a, you can spend a while here. Hey, yeah, it's it's our home, as as I said. So it's it is a community, and uh, we we're very fortunate within our organisation to have such a, a large number of volunteers, as Laura touched on earlier. Um, people that come and do our courses, and then kind of fall in love and end up doing everything from teaching to uh, you know things like. Um, Curating minerals, invigilating exams, or even just painting walls and doing working bees, you know, we we do all of that stuff ourselves too. Uh, Is there anything you want to add uh, and let people know where you can can be found and... uh, where you can find Facebook and uh, all that, that sort of stuff. That'll be Laura for the Facebook. <laughs> um, we do have a, a Facebook page. Um, again, we're a volunteer-run organisation, um, so we try to keep the content a little bit varied. Um, we try to, if we find an interesting news story overseas that's gemstone-related, we'll put it up for the benefit of our followers. Um, and we try to keep them um, updated with local news about the happenings of their local division. Um, we're coming up to Christmas, so Christmas parties will be advertised on Facebook. We've got a very strong community culture within GAA. Um, yeah, um, I would say if anybody is interested in finding anything further out to contact their local state division, uh, we've got as I said, we've got a, a headquarters in every capital city in Australia and we've got a very active membership and we certainly, yeah. you don't need to be a gemologist to be a member. We, we, would, uh, we encourage anybody that's got an interest in gemstones to consider membership or to consider one of our short courses. Yeah. Well, as you said before, like you, will find, you find new things out every day. So to become knowledgeable and remain knowledgeable is something that you Absolutely. probably have to subscribe to. Become, become part of the family. <laughs> become part of our crazy family. Uh, if people want more information, they can also ring 1300-GEM-EDU or email us at info at gem.org.au. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. No problem. And uh, thank you. <laughs> and um, I'm t- uh, I'll be back <laughs> for those conversations. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, take care. We'll welcome you back anytime you want to come. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. Cheers. Beautiful.